Good morning, Bethel. All right. Well, for those of you that might be um, new or visiting with us this morning, it's our normal practice um, to work through books of the Bible, kind of paragraph by paragraph. Um, we do that because it's never the cleverness of the preacher that will transform people's lives um, or grow them, grow us in the grace um, of the Lord Jesus to make us more like Jesus. That kind of change and transformation only happens when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and drives it into our hearts um, and changes us from the inside out. So we trust in the Word. So we preach the Word and we don't rely on any gimmicks or fads or human gurus, okay? So listen to 2 Timothy 3.16 again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I don't have any inherent power to change you. I don't even have any inherent power to change me. But God's Word sure does have power to change us. Um, so we're working through the book of Isaiah right now. It's a big book, and there's a lot of distance between where we live. So historically, culturally, there's a lot of distance between Isaiah's day and our day. And it can be kind of confusing and hard to understand at times. Okay, And our text for this morning is one of those especially difficult sections. Okay? It's one of those sections that I might be tempted to want to skip over to get to things that are a little easier to understand and maybe a little more immediately applicable. Okay? But preaching through books, listening through books of the Bible, paragraph by paragraph, also means that God's Word sets the agenda for us, not our fickle or short-sighted preferences. Okay? It's also the effect that regular Bible reading through the whole Bible has on our lives, because you probably have certain books that you really like, and you might go to those. But going through the whole of the Bible over whatever period of time, doesn't have to be a year, will expose you to God's wisdom in all kinds of, of like the full landscape of His wisdom and His counsel. So um, that's also why we encourage you to do things like that. So it's a good thing to work through things that we might not otherwise be prone to work through, like Isaiah 21 to 23, which is what we're going to hit on today. So it's kind of like why you shouldn't be a picky eater, okay? So I'm not going to have you raise your hand if you're a picky eater, but pity for you, okay? If you're not prone to try things, then you don't know what you're missing. Then what happens? Somebody comes along and helps you out of your little culinary bubble, and you think, whoa, this is really good. And all of a sudden, your, your repertoire, or not your repertoire, your, your horizons have been expanded. Okay, so hopefully that will be the effect on us over and over and over again in the book of Isaiah, despite things being at times obscure and challenging as we read through it. So the book of Isaiah is full of riches, but it takes some mining to unearth those riches, so let's keep mining together. So let me just pray here briefly, and then we'll dive in. Father, I, I pray again with that old Anglican prayer that, that what we know not, 
you would teach us what we have not. Father, would you please give us what we are not. Would you please make us. Do it by the power of your word, wielded by your spirit, through the power of the gospel of your son and for his glory. Amen. Okay, so there's an outline that will be up here on the screen, and there's also one in your bulletin if you want to jot down some notes, okay? But first point, visions that give vision. This is kind of a little bit of an introduction to what's going on in, in Isaiah 21 to 23. We need to just consider briefly for a, a moment passages like this one, because this section is visionary in nature, Okay. The book of Isaiah, or I'm sorry, the book of Revelation is obviously visionary in nature, and there's a lot of confusing things in there. Um, but there are some similar components to Isaiah, uh, especially chapters 21 and 22. So look at how this section starts off 21, 20, 21 verse 1. The oracle, and that's another word for a prophetic word or vision. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me, Isaiah speaking. Flip down to 22, verse 1. And by the way, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find our passage for this morning on page 582 in the Pew Bible. It's there. So Isaiah 22, verse 1, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. Okay, so here's this idea of vision again. And again, the oracles are prophetic words from God, visions given to his prophets that they then transmit to the people. So do you remember the very first book, the very first verse of the book of Isaiah? Flip all the way back to Isaiah 1.1. Isaiah 1.1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah lived in a very turbulent economic, political, and even spiritual time. And into all that turbulence and the threats that those people were facing, God spoke He wasn't silent. He showed Isaiah things. He showed him things over and over and over again. He showed him that he was really the king. Because the people were really tempted to trust in earthly kings. And he said, no, I'm the great king. And I'm in control of all the movement of history and the rise and fall of nations. That's actually the the point of this second major chunk in the book of Isaiah, if you've been tracking along with us, I mentioned this recently, chapters 13 to 27, that chunk is all about Yahweh, God, he's the Lord of the nations, okay? And Isaiah saw that God superintends history, he can supersede any political or military power or threat, none of them are ultimately out of his hands, and he, because he's king over all the nations, he really can save. He really can protect. He really can help. Because nations are just like tools in his hands. He's so great. He really can be trusted no matter what. Okay? 
And he can save his people, not just from external threats, which they had plenty of those at that time, but he can save us from ourselves. And oh, how we need vision to see that, okay? Saved from our sins, saved from our idols, saved from our our inclinations to false alliances and allegiances, our self-salvation projects, Okay, it was true for the people of Judah, it's true for us. Now, I know that the political and military movements of the ancient Near East are probably not what you, you know, just can't wait to get home and and read up on, okay? So I, I know this is not something that really seems not all that helpful for our life today in the West, but that's actually not true. The human heart is the human heart. The, th- the people that threatened were different, but the threats were the same. And the reactions to those threats are the same. So they had threats to their safety, their peace, their comfort, their security, their identity. That sounds pretty contemporary, doesn't it? And their tendency was to run to false sources of hope and security, protection, deliverance, comfort, etc. Okay? And so God's truth, God's word, the vision, the insight, the grace that God gave through Isaiah to those people who were threatened, it's the same truth, word, vision, insight, grace that we need in the face of our threats. Okay? So again, we need vision. We need to be able to see through the lies. We need to see through the deceit, the, the facades and all of this. Because I, don't, I hope I don't have to convince you of this. This world that we lived in, it's that we live in, it's full of spin. Do I need to convince anybody? Our hearts are prone to spin. Do I have to convince us of that? I hope not. Satan is a spin doctor. There's a professor up at Westminster, um, north of Philly, named Carl Truman, and he's got a book with a great title. It's called The, a great title. It's called the Wages of Spin. And his podcast is called The Mortification of Spin. (laughs) Anyway, really helpful, insightful titles there, okay? But see, this is why we need to see reality from God's eye view. We need to see who he is. We need to be reminded. We need to see it regularly. Because whenever there's threats, where do they end up? They end up right here. And it's hard to see anything else, right? So that's why we need God's word to shine the light and put that threat in its proper perspective so that we see him and see that threat in light of who he is. We also need to see ourselves. We need to see what we're prone to. We need to see how God works. We need to see why we should trust him and in him alone to save us. So we need vision. We need prophetic vision. We dare not read our times or the threats in our lives merely through the lens of the news or just human interpretations. We need to see reality about God and ourselves from God's eye view. So that's what happens in these three chapters in Isaiah 21 to 23. God tears down the facades of these surrounding nations. He makes sure that there's no makeup, no veneer, no smoke and mirrors, okay? No smoke screens, no pretense, So the effect of these chapters is actually much like the book of Ecclesiastes, thus the scripture reading, okay? So we can't get duped by what promises so much in this world but delivers so little. It's all vanity and a chasing after the wind, okay? So one writer gave this illustration 
You know those vertical louvered blinds that kind of do this? So if they're at a 45 and you're looking at them directly face on, can you see through to the outside world? No, it's closed. Okay, but if you step a little to the left, all of a sudden you can see through. And you see light, you see what's going on outside. So it seemed like they're closed, but then you just get a little bit different perspective and you can see through things. You just need to be moved a little bit and gain that perspective. So that's actually what visionary literature like this does. Okay, let's dive in and see what we can see. Point number two, five nations that aren't what they seem. So remember, Judah was under threat from the Assyrians. They were the world power at the time. They felt helpless against their advance. So they were tempted to scramble and look around for other saviors, protectors, by means of political alliance instead of putting their trust in the Lord. And guess what? In the process of doing that, they basically sold themselves out and acted like national prostitutes. They acted like a national prostitute. So God comes to them in these chapters and says, listen, I'm going to show you what's real. I'm going to tear off the veil, the facades. So it's not what it appears to be. It's not what it seems. All these nations that you're tempted to trust in, they're all doomed. Their fate is actually in my hands. Why would you bet your future on a certain loser? Okay, so that's what God is lovingly saying here through Isaiah. So first nation, the wilderness of the sea, chapter 21, verses 1 to 10. We're just going to look at a portion of this, but look at 21.1 again. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, which is Persia. Lay siege, O media, all the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. So Medo-Persia was the kingdom that conquered the Babylonians. Um, Actually, I just gave it away. So the wilderness of the sea is actually a reference to the Babylonians. Okay? So let's read on here. Therefore, this is really weird stuff, I know. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I'm bowed down so I cannot hear. I'm dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. That's Isaiah's response to this. And then he contrasts his response with the response of some of the people in Judah. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. No. Say, no. Arise, princes. Oil the shield. Get ready for battle here. So you can see why I might want to skip this section. It's weird. What's going on here? Okay. But let's understand it. What nation is referred to by this title, the wilderness of the sea? It's actually not explicitly stated until... Verse 9, look at the latter half of verse 9. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So there's this stern, sober warning, this vision that was told to Isaiah, that the Medes and the Persians were going to go up and crush Babylon. Okay, we actually, if you want to read in Daniel 5, you'll see this, Okay. But Isaiah saw this future judgment. He saw the carnage that was coming, and it shocked him, and it terrified him. That's why he's so frightened. And that's why he's so thrown off by the way that the people of Judah are responding. 
They're throwing out the table, the rugs, eat and drink. Basically, what this is referenced to is they were courting Babylon's favor. Do you remember Hezekiah? If you don't know these sections, we're going to get to them. But basically, Assyria came and threatened. Hezekiah said, I don't know what to do. He prayed to the Lord. The Lord delivers them miraculously. But then envoys from Babylon come, and Hezekiah says, ooh, maybe we could make an alliance with these guys. And he shows them everything, which ends up setting up the future conquering by Babylon. So, hey, throw out the rugs. Let's eat and drink. Let's make a treaty. Let's make an alliance. So, believe it or not, Isaiah is actually being God, is actually being sarcastic here. The point of this section is in the name, this cryptic name. Babylon is referred to as the wilderness of the sea. Well, guess what? Babylon wasn't anywhere near a sea. It's on this big plain. So, it's an ironic title that shows what Babylon really is because it's tearing off the facade. It's not the source of life and strength and flourishing that it appears to be. It's a desert. It's barren. And it's a sea. Salt water looks really good, you know, but if you drink it, it'll kill you. So it's the wilderness by the sea. Both of those things are unable to sustain life. So Babylon is not hospitable to those who want to look to them to live. If you trust in Babylon, you tie your fate to Babylon, and Babylon is doomed. That's the point. So, okay, do you see the, th- the threatener, Babylon is different than what threatens us, but the threats are the same, and the way we respond is the same. So who and what are you trusting in for flourishing or protection or peace? Whose definition even of flourishing are you buying into? Just let me give you an example here. I don't know if anybody in this room would apply as far as this describing their life, but this will get at the point. Have you ever talked to a Christian parent about their adult child? And they go on and on about how their son or daughter got into this school or got that job or this promotion or that accolade. And then maybe you ask about how that child is doing spiritually and you learn that their life is barren and lifeless. Now, that could have just been, that's a hard subject. It's, it, it's hard to even talk about, and I'm just kind of doing small talk here. But it could be that what really matters, flourishing, is described in all the wrong ways. It's, it's measured in all the wrong ways by the way that the world views flourishing. Does that make sense? So whose definition of flourishing are you buying into? Things are not always what they seem. So we need the Word of God to move us over so that we can see reality through the blinds that this world puts up. So listen, another kind of text that would have some sympathetic vibrations here. So listen to the wake-up call that the church in Laodicea needed. I know your works, Jesus said to this church. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. For you say, they were blinded to their real condition. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable 
poor, blind, and naked. Let me move you over so you can see reality. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. I want to make you truly rich, spiritual riches, the riches of my mercy. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may really see. See with the eyes of faith. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So it's a loving thing when God moves us and opens our eyes to see reality. And then this section closes with a very subtle, at least to us subtle, a call to heed the warning. Look at 21.10. It says, Oh, my threshed and winnowed one. Think of agricultural context. In other words, my people, you've gone through so much purging pain of judgment. What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. In other words, please listen. Please heed this warning. Let God's vision give you vision. Don't look to false saviors, a false hope for deliverance or protection. Look to me. Well, the next two nations are closely linked, okay? We'll kind of take them together somewhat. In between Babylon, so here's Judah and Babylon, we could say like this. In between there lay the Arabian Desert. Okay, so there were these Bedouin tribes in that desert, Duma, verse 11, Dadon and Tema, 13 to 14. We see those, those names. Well, when the Babylonian envoys, I know this is the time when your eyes glaze over and you, you check back in in a minute when I, you know, tell a story or something. But anyway, um, try to track. So, so when the Babylonian envoys came to court Hezekiah to basically set him up, they would have passed through that region, and it appears that they tried to muster support among those tribes. So what happened was, I think they were successful, and Duma and Arabia have tied their fate to that of Babylon. So they're trusting in, they're betting on Babylon, so they're listening to hear how it went. So first look at Duma there, verses 11 and 12. Since they signed on with Babylon, they're eagerly waiting on word of how their bet is going to turn out. Have you ever bet on something? and You're waiting to hear how it's turning out? Invested in something and waited to hear how it's doing? Well, once again, there's another play on words here. Look at 2111. The oracle concerning Duma. One is called to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of night? Watchman, what time of night? The watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. What in the world is this talking about? Like, can we just go read Romans? Um, (laughs) The whole point is there's no news. But the tone is foreboding. Like, God's silent. He's got nothing to say to them. Okay, but we're going to cover this one quickly. So Seir is a reference to the people of Edom. So the nation of Edom, Isaiah calls them Duma, which means silence. Okay, so another play on words here. You can kind of hear it in English. Edom has become Duma. So what's this silence all about? Well, God gives no word of hope for this nation because they're trusting in Babylon. They've allied themselves with Babylon, and Babylon has nothing. So if you hope in a lost cause, you will have no hope. I have nothing to say to you. Okay? So the point's pretty simple, even though it's confusing to read it. 
So have you ever had this experience? Isn't the silence deafening and damning when you put all your hope in something that doesn't come through for you? The third nation there, Arabia. Verses 13 to 17. Look at verse 13. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravan of Dedanites. Look down at verse 16. For thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. Okay, again, we're not going to go into tons of detail here, but in Hebrew, words don't have vowels, basically. Okay? You know the vowel sounds from the context. So there can be two words with the exact same consonants, but in a different context, it's a different word, and so there's two different meanings, okay? So here's the point. The word for Arabia shares the same consonants with the word for evening, like, you know, before you go to bed, that kind of thing, evening. So here's the point. The sun is setting on Arabia, It's evening time. Darkness is falling on them. It's another play on words. And the point is this. There's no ally or savior here. If if they've allied themselves to Babylon, their future is not bright. The sun is setting. It's like this. Do you want to hire a 95-year-old to lead your company to execute a 10-year master plan? No. That'd be crazy. So... That's what we do when we place our hope and trust in things that are going to pass away. Listen to 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. Evening has already come darkness. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So can I just give you a few examples here of what this could look like? There's so many other examples, but you could imagine making, you can just imagine centering all of your life on your child or your children, a child-centered home rather than a God-centered home. And that child could could become like an idol. Everything centers around the child. Well, what happens if that child is wayward? Or even what happens when that child leaves home? All of a sudden, you don't even know who you are anymore. Now, there's an appropriate struggle emotionally with that for mothers and fathers that love their kids and invest in them. But do you see, have you ever known someone who just put everything into their child and then they just fall apart? Their life falls apart. It's something that's passing away. A child's not big enough to be the center of our lives. How about if you live for retirement? Have you heard these stories of people that just, they just can't wait, they can't wait, and then they get cancer two days after they retire, and they die within a year? Or they lose everything? Or how about just banking our contentment or our satisfaction on more stuff? It's all destined for the landfill. It's passing away. And it's so easy to get caught up in these things. They're vanity, vanity, a chasing after the wind. Fourth nation, the Valley of Vision, chapter 22, verses 1 to 25. Look at the first verse. The oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. Why do you, what do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. 
Okay? Again, this is weird and hard to understand, but get a few insights here and it's not so weird, not so hard to understand. There's more irony here. Another ironic title. Jerusalem, supposed to be the place of divine revelation. It's where God dwelt with his people. The place of vision from God. They were to be this city on a hill and light to the nations. But the light had gone dark. And instead of a light to the nations, a city on a hill, Mount Zion, right? They become a valley. And there's no vision in the valley. You need to get up on a mountain to see. So back to the text, end of verse 2. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. So in other words, Isaiah is seeing what's happening and predicting it. They've been lulled to sleep. They're blind. They're partying as if everything is well. They're saying peace, peace when there's no peace. And so again, they're going to get caught off guard. They're not going to be killed in battle because they're not ready for battle. They're not ready for anything. They're just partying. So they're going to be conquered without a fight. You're slain or not slain with a sword or dead in battle. Then Isaiah contrasts how they were whooping it up because they were blind with his weeping because he saw reality. Look at verse 4. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let, my wit- Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts is a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. He was going to judge his people. Jerusalem was eventually just completely sacked by Babylon. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. So when the threats came, what did those in Judah do? Well, there were two responses in this chapter. They are, represent pretty much the rest of the chapter. Look, verse 22.8. He's taken away the covering, so the threats come. How do you respond? There's two responses. Both of them are unbelieving. 22.8. He's taken away the covering, the protection of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down the houses that fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls of the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. So some, when the threat came, they scrambled and they took matters into their own hands to try to fix it themselves to try to protect themselves, and they looked everywhere but up. Or, look at verse 12. In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness. What? This threat is coming, it's imminent, and you're killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die? So others, rather than looking reality in the face and repenting, they said, we're going to just enjoy ourselves a little while before we die. I mean, again, this sounds pretty contemporary, doesn't it? What do you do when the threats come? Do you tend to scramble, take matters into your own hands? Well, guess what? That's not just a personality quirk or flaw. It's not just how you're wired. It's a trust and worship issue. A who's your savior issue. Or you could be like these other folks. 
When the threats come, the things that make you nervous and anxious and stressed out, do you drown your fears and anxieties and sorrows in alcohol or TV or food or plan your next vacation or whatever, fill in the blank? Before we move on to the last nation, we should note that Paul actually quotes this section in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you remember that phrase? Let us think, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The people in Isaiah 22 responded to hopelessness with parting like there was no manana, okay? Like there's no tomorrow. And Paul actually says, amen, I'll join you. If Jesus isn't raised, pour me a tall one. Like I'm just ready to... This is crazy. I'm dying here. Paul actually says, amen, if there's no resurrection from the dead. Because if there's no resurrection from the dead, then there's no hope. So you might as well just grab as much pleasure as you can for your worm food. No, Paul went through all kinds of hardship and suffering for the sake of the gospel precisely because he believed wholeheartedly that Christ had been raised. And he would one day too. So rather than loving this world that's passing away and then selfishly living for today, one, one writer said, they're living not for the end but for the weekend. So rather than loving this world that's passing away and selfishly living for today, which is vain and chasing after the wind, this text is a call to love God. He's a rock and a refuge. He's got real hope through Christ. And then we can lay our lives down in love for others, being steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that labor for the Lord is not in vain. One more nation, Tyre, in chapter 23, and that's with a Y, not an I. Okay, so 23.1. The oracle concerning Tyre, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without harbor or house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon who crossed the sea have filled you. And on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. Look down to verse 15. In that day Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. So the men on Friday morning studied Isaiah before we started preaching through the book and we used a little booklet by a friend of mine, a Bible study booklet, um, Drew Hunter, And listen to this quote, a summary. He summarizes it well on this section. The final oracle is against Tyre, a hub of commerce. This city is called a prostitute because money was the driving motive for everything. Sorry, all these other quotes come into my head. Another guy said they were out hustling the nations. You get the the picture. So Drew says, how would this seduction of security and prestige have weakened Judah's trust in God? What are ways 
that wealth provides a false sense of security or glory? How should God's judgment against Tyre change Judah's perspective and our own towards such people and nations? And then he says this, all efforts of false religion are at bottom self-salvation projects. In utter self-reliance, we offer the work of our hands to gain the approval and acceptance of God and others. But with his final words on the cross, it is finished. Jesus announced the accomplishment of our salvation. We must look away from our bad works and also our good works and look only to Christ and his finished work. So if we look to Christ, we'll never be put to shame because he's a real savior. But if we look to money, if we look to this world for security and hope, wherever we look, look what happens. 23.5, look what happens. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it, to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. And this actually gets ratcheted up to the ultimate degree in Revelation 18. You can look at it later, but this is exactly what is alluded to in Revelation 18 at the end of time. So the whole point is, Tyre was a card house. Don't trust in it. Don't build your security, your hope, your future on what money can offer. Okay, so Babylon began the section, Tyre concludes the section, and they're kind of like bookends. Listen to Ray Ortland's perceptive comments here. He says, Babylon and Tyre together typify all human societies. Babylon symbolizes ruthless political power, and Tyre symbolizes dishonest commercial success. Babylon used force. Tyre used seduction. The prophets understood the power of the Babylon, Babylon Tyre of this world. They saw that this world is not only the opponent of faith, it's also the seductress of faith. The devil doesn't much care either way. He'll use harsh intimidation, and he'll use soft seduction. Whatever works, as long as we lose sight of Christ so that our faith no longer overcomes. Okay, so I know the visions of these chapters take some work to understand. But you can see, I hope, it's very relevant and contemporary if we do a little bit of work. In fact, it's funny because we actually talk like this all the time. With irony, with plays on words. You could actually think of Isaiah 21 to 23 as the political cartoons of the 7th century B.C. But these are deadly serious. You could think of, do you remember this? Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac jokes after the housing bubble burst. Now, if somebody 3,000 years from now read those jokes about Fannie Mae, they'd be like, what in the world are you talking about? But we, we get it because we've lived it. So that's why we've got to jump into Isaiah's world to understand what's going on, and then we realize, oh, there's nothing new under the sun. This isn't far from Wall Street coming crashing down and how people would respond. So let's just 
bring it a little bit closer to home. I mean, the, the irony is those weird word plays and all that stuff, sometimes it means we use stuff that's cryptic, like if someone to, were to read those jokes 3,000 years from now, but they actually make the point even more clearly and more powerfully than just mere propositions, right? So, again, we like political cartoons because they're powerful. Same thing here in Isaiah 21 and 23. So, just bring it a little closer to home here. Do you remember when the housing bubble burst and things went really south economically? Did you ever have daydreams? Did you ever have any thoughts of like moving to another country? Anybody? Okay, you're not raising your hand. Thank you, Mike. At least you're honest. Um, did, you ever, did you ever Google what states in the U.S. were stronger and more stable than Delaware? Did you ever do anything like that? Thank you. Okay. So, again, if, especially if you had lost your job and you were looking for a new one, now, again, you got to go where there's a job. But still, our hearts, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay, this is not so far from where we live. So imagine a prophet on Wall Street decrying Enron before the cracks started to, to appear in their massive foundation. That's Isaiah. That's what's going on here. And they were all going, eh, get out of here, prophet. That kind of deception is not only in the past. We are always in danger of trusting in the spin of this world. What is a mall? What happens at a mall? Do you ever go in there and, you know what? The next time you go in the mall, pray before you go in there that the Lord would do this. You can see through. What is advertising? What do we need Photoshop for? Credit card living. And then you know what happens? We become like what we admire. We've got this spin-filled world with all these images What's, what's human flourishing look like? And then we become like what we admire, our online avatars. Are we really who we portray? Our Instagram image? I tried to think of a modern example of this, and I thought about Dubai. And I can't even take the time to go into this, but you should Google an article called The Dark Side of Dubai. It's unbelievable. It's like... It's like tailor-made to illustrate these texts. I mean, do you know anything about Dubai? It's this crazy cosmopolitan oasis in the middle of the Arabian desert. It's home to the world's largest dancing fountain. Don't you want to go? The, the tallest building, you know, over a half mile high. One of the few so-called seven-star hotels. The largest artificial islands. Have you ever seen these islands? It's like this crazy thing. Um, the largest natural flower garden. The largest mall in the world. Do you know some of their police drive around in like Lamborghinis? You want to go be a police car driver or a policeman in, in Dubai? Ski Dubai. You know, it's crazy hot weather there, but they've got Ski Dubai as an indoor resort, 22,000 square meters inside the mall, which is the largest in the world, right? And then just recently, you probably saw it somewhere on some social media thing, this jetpack company. The guys are flying through Dubai. Finally, it's happened. We can fly now. It's a card house, folks. Now, you're probably not tempted to move to Dubai. But in that article, it gives testimony of people that that's exactly what they bought into. 
and, and the, the city is being built on the backs of slave labor, and it's this dark side, and they, they literally bust them out of town every night so that the haves don't have to see them. It's unbelievable. So enough with the false and the facades. Like, don't you want to see reality? Don't you want to see God for who he is? The threats can blind us. Our fears can blind us. Don't you want to see God for who he is? Don't you want to see yourself for who you are? Don't you want to see that he's the real Savior? Jesus is the real Savior. And we need this all the time. But guess what? It's not just the kingdoms of this world that are not always what they seem. The true king and his kingdom are not always what they seem. Flip ahead to Isaiah 53. We'll close here. We've gone here a lot as we've walked through Isaiah already, and I think we're going to keep going here. Isaiah 53, 2, kind of partway through. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. If you know Christ this morning, you know what God did? You looked at Jesus before the grace of God broke in and invaded your life, and you just saw nothing. And then the Spirit of God moves you, and you go, yes, so this is stricken by God, imposter, weak. Who needs religion? It's the opiate of the masses. Oh, I need a savior. So he looked weak and defeated, and he was actually omnipotently powerful. And the gospel is the power of God to really save, to really save. The kingdom of God appears to be weak and powerless. Don't you feel that way? Oftentimes, it's the poor, the marginalized, the weak ones who make up the kingdom. But we have a real king and a real kingdom. We have a sure and certain hope. This is no card house. The city of God is no card house. So let's heed this warning, this word. The word of God is given to us so that we can see through the facades and the fakery, the lies and deceit that's all around us, the spin. We need to see our real savior who can really save us from our real sin and deliver us from a real hell to a real paradise with him forever. So what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may, by testing, discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't love this world or the things in the world. It's all passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So listen, we've got a real Savior because for to us, a child was born. To us, a son was given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, no matter how it looks, 
with the natural eye, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Bethel, let's put all of our eggs in that basket. Whoever hopes in this king will never be put to shame. And then, rather than chasing after the wind, we can be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. If we're going to do that, we're going to need vision. So that we don't waste our lives, but we spend them well in what is going to last and what matters. We're going to need vision from the Lord, and we're going to need the Lord to be our vision. So it's fitting that we close with that hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Let's sing together.